You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. A new UK-wide audit of GP records by the research team at St George's University in London has revealed there are 40,000 more people in the UK living with a form of muscular dystrophy than had previously been thought putting it on a par with more well-known conditions such as multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease. Rob Burley is Director of Care, Communications and Support at Muscular Dystrophy UK. Muscular dystrophies or muscle wasted conditions are a range of around 60 plus conditions. They can affect people in a wide variety of ways. They can affect your mobility right through to affecting your heart and your lung muscles. The key thing is that they're all progressive, they're all rare conditions, but they all affect your muscles in some way or another. Rob, do we know what causes these muscle wasting conditions? Most have a genetic cause and they're passed through families. Some, like a condition called myasthenia gravis, can be linked to autoimmune issues and some can be due to metabolic changes like a condition called Pompe disease. But by and large, the majority of muscle wasting conditions are genetic in their cause. It's not inevitable that if you are carrying a gene that your child will have the condition. It often depends on whether both parents have certain mutations in the gene or a certain faulty gene. So there are more people carrying the genes that can lead to a muscle wasting condition than there are people living with those conditions. Muscular dystrophy patients require a lifetime of multidisciplinary support, access to which can vary. And I know armed with the the new patient data, you're calling for an increase in resources for people living with a form of muscular dystrophy. Alongside the impact on quality of life, the UK government's rare diseases framework acknowledges that living with a rare disease like a muscle wasting condition can have a huge impact on education, financial stability, mobility and mental health. There's certainly an element of postcode lottery in terms of the services that are available to people living with muscle wasting conditions. And that's due to the size of the workforce, the training that's needed. If you're near a new muscular centre, you will have access to all that in one place. If you're living somewhere perhaps more remotely, you may have to travel to receive that kind of care. So as well as specialist neuromuscular physiotherapists, it's really important that community physiotherapists are able to access support and how to support somebody living with a muscle wasting condition. A big thing that we're calling for at Muscular Dystrophy UK is better access to psychological support because the impact of living with a progressive condition or having a child with a progressive condition in your family can be really quite major. So people need that support and ideally from someone who understands what muscle wasting conditions are. Looking to the future, I understand there's been huge strides forward in the development of new treatments for a number of these incurable, progressive muscle wasting conditions. We're certainly understanding more and more about the conditions that we work across. There's some really exciting research that's bearing fruit in terms of treatment. There are 10 treatments currently available in some form through the NHS. We'd estimate there are another 10 not far behind going into the appraisal process. So there is hope for the future, certainly. And that's why we'll keep funding the research and we'll keep working with researchers and clinicians. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Carers Week is an annual awareness campaign supported by a host of our leading charities to celebrate and recognise the vital contribution made by the UK's 6.5 million unpaid carers. The theme this year is Make Caring Visible, Valued and Supported. Emily Holzhausen, Carers UK Director of Policy and Public Affairs, explains why. Well, if you ask any carers, they'll say they don't feel visible. If you ask them whether they feel valued, they say no, not always, not necessarily even by their own families, but certainly not 
by government. And do they feel supported? The answer is no, they don't always feel supported personally, financially, and they don't always feel that the support which would be transformational for the person that they care for and themselves, they don't always get what they need. And this is all encompassing of all carers, no matter what age or what walk of life. Emily, what are the health and social care issues affecting carers? You're talking about people who are unpaid, who might provide care for a family member. That might be long term or it might be very short term, but it's because of an illness or a disability that that support is provided. In terms of health, unpaid carers are twice as likely to be in bad health if they are providing very significant amounts of care. And we see a physical and mental health impact of caring, which is more significant. The mental health impact, there's also an age difference. So the younger you are, the far more likely than your peers to have mental health issues really as a result of caring. Then in terms of health services, there's a challenge that carers are not always identified and supported. And there are some fantastic people within the health service who really get family care and understand that if you support the whole family and everybody understands what's going on, you get a better outcome in care. And the NHS has a habit of just looking at patients, really, and not necessarily always looking at the wider family. And that can be very problematic. You know, we wouldn't expect health professionals to provide care without having a medical record to hand. And yet carers are not trained. They don't necessarily know the interaction of different medication that they're supposed to administer and support. It's a scary business if you've not done this before. It's quite challenging. So we'd like the NHS to really think carer. And social care? Social care is so important to people's lives, enabling people to have a good life. But what is challenging at the moment is the amount of money going into the social care workforce and overall that there's a shortage in the number of paid care workers and a shortage in care provided. We're seeing a lot of families going without the vital support that they need, people doing far more than they should. And then if we look at working age, there are many people who would be really stressed about juggling paid work and caring for their relatives at the same time and about one in five are at risk of having to reduce work or give up work if they don't get enough social care. So having enough in the system is really, really important. Outside of the measures you've discussed, what are the immediate ways of doing more to help carers? If you are providing unpaid care yourself, is to recognise what you do, to think about what you need in your life and make sure that you find out about the information advice. So Carers UK has got a web-based tool in our advice and information section. It's called the Upfront Guide to Caring. It should, if you just answer a few questions, it'll give you a tailored information plan based very much on where you are in your caring journey and what you think you need. So you don't have to sift through all that maze of information to try and find something and risk missing out because you don't know what you don't know. The second thing is that if there are people in your family or your friendship network or at work who are providing unpaid care, then a little bit of understanding goes an awfully long way. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Over 600 organisations, including the House of Commons, have made the pledge to support women affected by the menopause. 
a time when women's periods stop and they can no longer become pregnant naturally. The menopause occurs typically between the ages of 45 to 55 or can be brought on earlier by surgery to remove the ovaries or the womb. Paula Briggs is a consultant in sexual health at Liverpool's Women's Hospital and chair-elect of the British Menopause Society. During the menopause transition, that predictable monthly ovulation, which happens for most women, ceases to happen, but it takes some time for women to move from reproductive to post-reproductive life. And in that transition period called the perimenopause, the brain is desperately trying to make the ovaries produce an egg. When the pituitary gland produces follicle-stimulating hormone, it's stimulating primordial follicles in the ovary, which produce estrogen. But if you don't get ovulation, you don't get the other hormone, progesterone, which would protect the lining of the womb. So for many women, the first symptom of the perimenopause is heavy menstrual bleeding and the bleeding can become very irregular. Sometimes the women's cycle becomes shorter or longer, but it's fairly chaotic and it can have a huge impact on quality of life. Women may present to their GP with some menopausal symptoms, heavy menstrual bleeding, their mood may be low, they may feel anxious, they might not be sleeping properly, they might be having hot flushes, night sweats. And they may just have one of those things. They may have low mood, for example, and heavy menstrual bleeding. And if they're over the age of 45, then what we really want clinicians to think about is menopause. So instead of thinking, oh, this woman's depressed and she needs antidepressants, think, could this be menopause and would hormone replacement therapy help if it's appropriate? Paula, talking to you off microphone to help break the taboo surrounding menopause, you were mentioning the importance of arming yourself and your family with as much authoritative information from reputable sources like the British Menopause Society. They may be the first people to recognise what's going on because I think if you're the person with the problem and the way that you manage problems is to get your head down and just get on with things, it's very difficult to think to yourself, is it menopause? And when should we be talking to our G? about menopause. I think talking to the GP ideally would happen at the health check proactively offered by her GP at the age of 45. And women also are called regularly for cervical smear tests. That's a real opportunity to ask women about symptoms. 95% of menopause management should be done in primary care. And I think there are some fantastic GPs out there doing brilliant work. And the way things are moving in primary care is towards the development of women's health hubs and so within each of those you would expect two or three GPs with a special interest in women's health and that ideally I think would be the place for women to go and women shouldn't have to pay to have menopause management provided. Women hopefully are going to spend about a third of their life post-menopause and many of those women something like 75% will experience menopausal symptoms but also there are the long-term consequences of lack of estrogen, the impact on bone, cardiovascular health, tissue quality. I read that there are as many as 34 different menopausal symptoms. Hormone replacement therapy is a treatment used to relieve some of those symptoms, but it's not right for everyone, is it? No, it depends on the individual woman's circumstances. So there are some women who already have established cardiovascular disease. So for that woman, it may be too risky to provide hormone replacement therapy or the patient may have had a hormone dependent cancer. And in those women, 
it's important, I think, that any decision about hormone replacement therapy is taken by a multidisciplinary secondary care menopause service. And the reason I say secondary care, for example, at Liverpool Women's, we work closely with the gynae oncologists. We have a great relationship with the breast surgeons. And it's much easier to collaborate and to develop a multidisciplinary management plan for that patient. And what about the options if you don't have risk factors but decide against HR? Clothing, fans, working with your employer to change your working hours. So a lot of shift workers, I think, will ask not to do night shifts if they're already not sleeping. Night shifts are difficult. And then there are things that can make some women feel better. Some women will respond to sage, for example. Isoflavins are plant-based estrogens, which you can buy over the counter. And the only thing I'd say about that, they do work. They are weaker than what we can prescribe. But women who've got risk factors should avoid them. So back to the kind of, say, breast cancer patients, they may not be eligible for phytoestrogens. And the problem with things that you buy over the counter is that they're not regulated in the same way as hormone replacement therapy products that we can prescribe. And then there are other ways of managing common symptoms. So, you know, for those cancer patients who perhaps are experiencing horrendous flushes, they're not sleeping, their mood is low, that impacts on how you function on a day-to-day basis. But some antidepressants actually work really well for those symptoms. And I think if patients aren't explained the rationale for you, using an antidepressant, then they would possibly shy away from that. And then we're currently involved in research into neuroendocrine antagonist drugs, which are non-hormonal drugs used specifically for hot flushes, night sweats and sleep disturbance. And that's a really, really exciting area, particularly for women who either don't want hormone replacement therapy or who are not eligible for hormone replacement therapy. And I would say we're probably two to three years off those drugs coming to market. Word on Health, on air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health.